Hi, this is Gary LaRue of Microwave Journal. On today's Frequency Matters podcast, a conversation with Tony Trin of Mercury Systems. We're going to explore trends in integration and packaging and the impact that is having on system performance. Welcome, Tony. Thanks for spending some time with us. Yeah, good morning, Gary, and thank you so much for having me on your show. So to start, tell us a little bit about your background and your role at Mercury Systems. Yes, I've been uh, at Mercury Systems here for about six months, and my current role here is the Senior Director over Advanced Packaging Technologies. Uh, with that, it covers both the 2.5D and 3D advanced packaging, what we call heterogeneous integration. Prior to Mercury, I had spent about 22 years at Raytheon Technologies and also a little bit of time there at General Dynamics. And so I come from a large company going into a smaller company here, but in a very different role than I've done in the past. And you've done some packaging work in your prior roles? Yes, I've uh, been involved with packaging ever since uh, 2012 with Raytheon Technologies, doing uh, some very unique packaging to help solve some some challenges related to swap swap and security. Cool. Well, you recently wrote an article for Microwave Journal saying how advances in A to D converters and heterogeneous integration are providing new capabilities for our armed forces. What was the idea in the article? Yeah, that with that article, I really wanted to highlight, you know, how changes at the packaged silicon level, uh, which isn't often thought about, you know, and and some of the systems and and some of the conversations, how that could enable some leading edge capabilities, right, to counter some of the evolving mission threats that our armed forces face every day with our systems, and you know how to even evolve from the current threat set and and grow that into future threats as as they're coming. Uh, which is very, very fast these days with, with all the stuff going on geopolitically. And so really, Merck is at that intersection between trying to bring in the commercial world into the defense world, right? So in my role with Mercury, really that speed of relevancy is really important and something that I drive pretty hard in my role is how do we bring in the best of the best, the commercial world, marry it up with us, married up with the heterogeneous integration and how do we come up with capabilities that really solve some of these challenging problems. And what what we've been doing recently is uh, doing a lot of work in open systems architecture at chip scale is what we call it um, to enable that, that commercial speed for the defense market. Interesting. Well, as you note, Mercury System has uh, really been focusing on the packaging side of the equation, the integration. Uh, tell us some about your capabilities and some of the investments that you've made over the past several years. Yeah, Mercury has invested a little over $15 million uh, to bring the what we call the 2.5D packaging capabilities to our Phoenix location to support the, the heterogeneous integration, or HI we call it, products. And these products end up being uh, system and packages, or SIPs, we call them. They're, so there are different types of SIPs that, that are produced depending on the customer's needs. The investment itself really brought the ability for our location here to stand up both class 10,000 and class 100,000 clean rooms to, to be dedicated towards the trusted manufacturing assembly of those type of products, along with all the capital equipment that's required to, to do that work, right? So over the last couple of years, you know, we've been working pretty hard to qualify that process flow 
that really includes two different types of packaging flows. One being dye on organic substrate, and the second one being dye interposer on organic substrate. So two different types of flows uh, depending on the buildup of these SIPs. And so really that with that process flow and the equipment, that entire flow covers you know the front end, which is starting with the dyes and high-density substrates and interposers and finishing with a complete SIP assembly at the end where we attach the heat sink and it's ready for testing. So we've invested you know, both in digital and RF testing as well with this uh, investment. So do it all basically onshore, right? We, we, take, we take devices, we package them onshore, and then we test them onshore. We actually extend that even further with the design work. So designs related to the interposers and substrates are also done at our facility. So all U.S. citizens, of course, and we handle ITAR types of requirements and even classified as well some customers require classified capabilities and we do that as well so we're really you know trying to target an area where i think there's a huge gap within the industry to help support the, the dod i would also say that beyond just the onshoring which is which is a very major of the major advances here with, with what mercury is doing we also are setting ourselves up here to have a business that can handle the DOD types of volumes, so lower volumes and high mix is really what we want to want to target here. So it takes a very different business model to be able to do that. Um, and we also are focused on not only these capabilities to, to do packaging, but how do we design for high reliability and rugged environments, right? So that, that's what really is the, the value add for Mercury here. That's very impressive, um, and it's the timing is excellent given the confluence of a number of the issues that we've seen over the past couple years. As an example of a heterogeneous product, I recall you have announced a, a RF SIP, I think the RFS-1140. Uh, tell us a little bit about its functionality, because I think the, the integration, what's in the package, is very impressive. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it is our first product that is going to be RF-based from our Phoenix location. And what this product really focuses on is the electronic warfare applications, what we call the EW applications, which is very different than some of the the RF type of applications because it's really targeting a wide spectrum where you're trying to detect a wide a wide amount of energy out there and characterizing that energy right as it comes in through your system. And with some of the more radar type of applications, those have to operate in more clustered EM spectrums and requires a much higher precision ADC DACs. So this one, I would say, is more targeted to the EW, direct digitization of those frequency spectrums anywhere from 2 to 18 gigahertz per channel. And there's going to be multiple channels in this product. We we're targeting very low latency in order to react to emitter times. And also we're doing all the processing co-package cool inside the device. So really, you know, it's when there's situations where there's no time to send the data somewhere else for, for processing, we need to make the decisions right there, right, right next to where the, the data conversion is happening. So that's what the RFS 1140 solves is that problem. The, the other thing I wanted to point out is, is the 1140 really, uh, it's 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 uh, trying to maximize the instantaneous bandwidth with sampling rates as high as uh, 64 giga samples per second, hmm. uh, 
and supporting a wide bandwidth up to 30 gigahertz um, to really analyze that full EM spectrum. And the way we do all of that, really, you know, what's the, the actual core silicon that's inside the device? You know, really, you're looking at the, the two Jariot devices and also a, uh, a Versal, Versal 1902 core FPGA. I think a lot of the defense primes that we've talked to, you know, they, they see this as a, a very elegant solution because of the FPGA being configurable. There are a lot of applications for this that can be, that they can apply based on their, their particular unique use case. And so having a configurable FPGA really allows you to have that flexibility along with, you know, the ADC DACs all co-packaged in. We also have both DDR4 and our flash that are integrated into the device as well. So you've got pretty much everything there, right, that you need. Our initial offering will be a smaller uh, package uh, that that won't have point of loads, um, but eventually we we'll want to get to a version of it with all the point of loads being that the point of loads are actually are going to be converted on the chip. So you only have to provide it one uh, type of uh, voltage. So that that actually is going to be you know the product that I think is going to really you know change the game here once once we get to that point. So. Mm. Well, the level of integration in the package obviously is a very significant size reduction compared to if you were doing this on a printed circuit board. Um, and you mentioned latency. What are some of the other benefits of the SIP? Yeah, so I'd say the, the SIP itself, because we are doing heterogeneous integration, we can use chiplets from different types of manufacturers, which means different nodes, right, and different foundries. We were able to do this because we're, we're integrating the devices that make the most sense to create these specialized functions that best fit the application. Um, because of that, we are envisioning more reuse of these chiplets, which means lower design costs if you're reusing chiplets through a library. Also, with heterogeneous integration, we have the capability and the equipment in order to place these guys very close to each other on a high-density substrate uh, or interposer, uh, depending on the different applications of this. And by placing them closer, we achieve much shorter data interconnects and achieve higher speeds. So you mentioned the um, application this is designed for is uh, broadband EW. Um, if you look at this SIP or other SIPs that would have uh, similar functionality, maybe different chiplets inside of them, what are some of the system applications that you're you're targeting with these SIPs? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty wide application. Um, I would say that because we are focused on the swap C piece of this, it's really trying to get to systems where 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 really don't the customer can't afford to have a large footprint, right? So anything related to edge processing here is is where it really shines. So think about platforms like airborne radar, sea-based radars, ground-based radars, missiles and munitions, uh, unmanned, unmanned systems, jets, and even potential satellite operate uh, applications as well, where, where swap C is important. We also, I would also say that there are Additional derivatives of this SIP that we are currently planning, where we can target other other ranges within the RF spectrum to uh, to get into more different types of systems where EW is not the only thing that that it's doing right. 
You mentioned, I think, 64 giga samples per second is the capability of this one. Uh, given the state of A to D converters and processors, is that kind of the limit today? What are the frequency and bandwidth limits for direct digitization? Yeah, uh, I'd say that these uh, these Jira devices are, are very much at the leading edge uh, at 64 giga samples per second and supporting um, bandwidths up to 30 gigahertz. Really, that's the wide EM spectrum that I was talking to you about. And it does really well, right, in this EW uh, sort of space. Um, say that the, that the ADD converters are, are on that bleeding edge. The ice is where, where I think uh, the uh, performance, uh, potential performance limitations will come in is the interface to the FPGA, right, being a, a JSD-204. Um, so that's the, it's going to be maxed out. At a, at a particular data rate, I believe it's like 32. So that's kind of how the, the way we see it is that the FPGA then needs to kind of catch up, right, with how fast the data conversion are now sampling the data. So, so it's amazing the uh, progression of the technology. Certainly, a lot of the what used to be analog components is uh, going digital. Yes. And a lot of it is being handled via algorithms within the uh, the chip. So things that used to be analog are now digitized and turned into software code. One thing that occurs to me, the thermal design of this has got to be equally complex. Uh, speak a little bit about the challenges there. Yeah, you've uh, touched on one of our uh, areas where we, we spent a lot of time on, which is Material selection and also how do we set up our, set ourselves for success during our two and a half D manufacturing process, right? Because there's a lot of process that you can apply to the device before the lid goes on. And so we have a lot of proprietary techniques to be able to spread the heat out so that we don't have local hotspots and we maintain that, that theta JC right above the temperatures of the, of the devices, right? So. Between that and a lot of thermal modeling, that's that's kind of how we handle solving that problem. We are mostly going into systems where the where the heat transfer is passive; it's not an actively cooled transfer. So it is a lot more challenging, let's say, in some of these systems to uh, put something like this where the thermal density is going to be higher than it would normally on be on a board, right? So yeah, definitely. Well, this type of functionality certainly would have tremendous utility for satellites and other space missions. What is the state of uh, qualification for space? And are there any, given the the speeds and the small node sizes, any technology limits caused by the space environment like radiation or those types of things? I mean, thermal obviously would be a key issue too. Yeah, I would say targeting geo would be challenging. So I would say focused on the LEO orbit, making things rad tolerant. We are actually working with a lot of our partners uh, for silicon to understand some of their limitations. Uh, There's some inherent radiation tolerance, I guess, as a part of the the material set that uh, a lot of these manufacturers are using with their chips. And so they may not be designing towards that requirement, but there may be inherent benefits that come along with, with the resultant devices. So we are going to be working very closely to do some additional testing and then trying to figure out what the gaps are, right, uh, and what additional shielding or 
additional processing needs to happen at the package level to add some more RAD tolerance to the devices. Well, it seems, for at least from my perspective, that uh, given the, uh, I guess, the vulnerability and the security of uh, space assets, that uh, the DOD is putting more emphasis on more low-Earth orbit. So that would uh, be certainly a more favorable environment for a lot of the uh, semiconductor technology. Yes, absolutely. Well, we heard a lot recently about Congress passing the Chips and Science Act, which uh, will invest some $52 billion in U.S. semiconductor technology, emphasizing onshore manufacturing. And the uh, the funding includes R&D. It includes an emphasis on packaging as well. Do you expect Mercury Systems will be participating in programs that are coming out of the CHIPS Act? I'd say yes, absolutely. We would be. Uh, we uh, we did submit uh, a response to the, the NIST RFI that happened uh, earlier this year um, and provided, you know, our, our perspective on it. Um, we we see a lot of uh, a lot of cross sections, uh, a lot of intersections between what the Chips Act is trying to do, in particular with uh, the roughly eleven billion dollars allocated to advanced packaging. I think that's really where the where we're we're going to be um, aligned with um, some of these things. Some of the Chips Act funding could potentially help us with capital investments to help grow our two and a half D manufacturing capabilities to handle greater demand and uh, additional complexities to try to reduce some of the supply chain risks associated with, uh, with that. We're also very focused in looking at the, uh, what will be uh, announced shortly regarding the microelectronics commons, which is roughly about $2 billion. We also, I'm also recently a member of the uh, American Semiconductor Innovation Coalition called mm-hmm. ASIC for the advanced packaging team and really trying to shape strategies and recommendations for the, the National Semiconductor Technology Center and also the National Advanced Packaging Manufacturing Program, which are both initiatives to help strengthen and advance the, the leadership in R&D. We also, you know, really looking at NIST as well based on the last uh, piece of information that we, we saw where they're going to be mostly leading the uh, the CHIPS program office, and determining how a lot of this funding is going to be allocated across the industry. Well, it sounds like there will be some uh, good opportunities for you there. As you look at your um, R&D roadmap, are there any things that uh, you could share with us about some of the directions that you're working? Yeah, we're excited because the the next phase of the 2.5D portion here is Really, the, the building right next door to us here in Phoenix uh, that used to be a flip chip, they're actually vacated now. They're, it's completely empty. And so we're, we're making plans to move in there likely by second quarter of next year. That'll give us roughly about 100,000 100, square feet of manufacturing floor space. We're still deciding how it's going to be used, but it'll be, it'll be expansion of our 2.5D uh, space. We are also looking at how to stand up a 3D HI product line as well with that. We've been very engaged with agencies like DARPA who are who announced the, the next generation uh, manufacturing, I'm sorry, microelectronics manufacturing program, the NGMM, to see how some of the things that we're doing intersects with 3DHI. 
the ability to stack silicon chips is something that naturally is the next uh, piece for us, right? We're already doing that with memories today. We're stacking memories nine high. We're using wow. wire bonds. But we'd like to kind of advance that from a wire bond technology to a TSV technology, right? So we can get the high-speed uh, signals vertically up and down through the chips using uh, silicon vias. Uh, we're also very interested in understanding how we can mix some of these CMOS devices that are purely silicon with other types of compound semiconductors, such as gas and GAN and SIGI, because a lot of those you know, inherently bring uh, much higher RF capabilities. And those are the kind of things that we're thinking about. In addition, I'd say lastly that we have been building um, our facility to handle more classified work. So other products that we're building, like the RFS1140, we're thinking about, well, how do we build a secure version of that, right? Uh, one where we can protect the government's most critical information, right? That if an adversary gets a hold of the chips, uh, uh, let's say it's on a platform, it gets lost in the battlefield, our adversaries are going to want to get information out of those, right? So how do we protect that, which is, you know, that is important to to our advantage, right? Our technological advantage. So those are the kind of things that we're looking at from an R&D perspective. Wow, it sounds like a, a full plate of things to to work on. Yes. Well, this is an exciting time in the industry. Uh, reminds me a little bit of the uh, the days of the the Mimic M I M I C program when DARPA was investing in the uh, maturing and uh, qualification of gallium arsenide Mimic technology, which has created a, a massive multi-billion dollar market, certainly in the RF space. And it looks like the uh, focus of government funding and the CHIPS Act, uh, DARPA's work with advanced packaging, um, it's an ex- equally exciting time with certainly a lot more money going into this than went into mimic technology. Of course, there's been inflation too. So I guess we, we, we have to make an accurate apples to apples comparison. Well, anything else you'd like to mention before we wrap up? Yeah, I'd like to, to mention that, as you can kind of see, Mercury is growing uh, very fast, particularly the, the group out here in Phoenix. Uh, we're really, uh, you know, really focused on uh, trying to miniaturize a lot of uh, the technologies that, uh, you know, have been out there for a while, but I think really trying to gain the benefits of heterogeneous integration. So we're always looking for people to join us. Uh, on our team, we, you know, we have an exciting mission here to really make microelectronics profoundly more accessible, right, to the DoD. And um, we're really interested in anyone that you know wants to join our team, right? So we're growing very fast, and uh, really excited for what's coming next. Well, that's a great a great point to end on. Certainly, in my years uh, watching Mercury Systems, I've been. Um, Really impressed by the growth and the uh, development of capabilities, and I think it's a great organization for someone to join. So I would endorse uh, your your plug for recruiting. Exactly. I've had a great uh, six months here. Good. Lots of, lots of uh, opportunities I would have not had um, uh, in my prior roles. So very exciting. That's great. Well, Tony, thank you so much for sharing your perspective and uh, sharing the work going on at Mercury Systems. Yes. Thank you so much, Gary. 